in the current market, being an everything for everybody type of establishment is becoming increasingly difficult because people are gravitating towards the establishment that fits their own needs the best and gives them an experience and an atmosphere and a pricing point that's uniquely suited to them. If someone isn't willing to listen to what the data is saying, isn't willing to have their own assumptions challenged, then they're probably trying to lead the insight rather than the other way around. Ninety. 3% said that the availability of rewards or points would influence where they would order from. So customers are telling us they want this. <laughs> it's really us as a sector that has to say, let's start to offer it. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. Every business leader has to ask two simple questions if they want their enterprise to thrive. Who is their customer and what do they want? But what should an operator do to find these answers? For many, the answer lies in market research to get a deeper understanding of their industry and their customers. So in this episode, we explore this very topic. We'll hear from Blonnie Wist of Luminar Intelligence and JP then of Slurp and Crosstown Donuts to understand how using data helps hospitality businesses to better understand their customers and trading environment. And we're kicking things off with Ernest Baskin, Associate Professor at St. Joseph's University of Philadelphia. Ernest has spent his entire academic career researching trends within the restaurant and hospitality sector. Welcome to Fifth Wave. Pleasure to be here. So to start off, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your research. Yeah, absolutely. So my background is actually in consumer psychology. And so I'm super interested in the way that consumers approach their choices. And I've just been really interested in that, mainly because I find it hard to make choices myself. So I'm interested in how others do it. Mm -hmm. And so really what I look at is how do we get consumers to purchase certain things in both retail and the food service setting? And also, how do we make sure that we know what consumers actually want so that we can better service their needs? So how do you even begin to go about understanding consumer behavior? One of the things that I do a lot of is experiments. And so the way that you typically go about doing an experiment, also known as A-B testing, mm -hmm. is you change one thing in the consumer's context or the way in which they make their decisions. And then you see how the consumer reacts to that one change while keeping everything else constant. And it's where many of the recommendations in the food service industry have come out of. So how do we know why certain things work on menus? How do we know why certain layouts are better in restaurants? A lot of those come out of experimental design. Okay. The other thing that I typically look at is I try to talk to consumers. I try to do a lot of surveys just to get a sense of general trends in the food industry so that I can understand what consumers are going to be looking for. What would you say are some of the big trends that hospitality companies will face over the next few years? So one of the things that we're seeing is that obviously supply chain is a major issue. And so one of the things that I've seen a lot of food service providers 
responding to is slimming down their menu to some extent. So one of the ways that food service operators typically think about slimming down menus is they take the things that sell the most, keep those, and take the things that sell the least and remove those. But one of the things you really need to think about is, are the things that sell the least the ones that are keeping folks coming into the restaurant or setting the tone of your establishment and setting the atmosphere? So just a very simple, hey, this is what makes us the most money versus this is what makes us the least money is a very, very high level kind of analysis that may not be actually good for your long-term profitability because you may turn off the customers that come in for that one particular item, maybe don't buy a lot of it, but wind up spending a lot more money on the rest of your menu. So a more holistic understanding of your customer will actually give you a better sense of what items to cut versus what items to keep. Yeah, I can imagine that that $2,000 bottle of champagne, for example, might be a talking point that might position the company as a premium company. And then, yeah, people might come and spend less on other items, but still come nonetheless because of the brand positioning. Yeah, exactly. Okay, fascinating. What other changes do you see in consumer behavior? One of the things that I've noticed is consumers are really looking for value. So they need to understand that the products that they're seeing in the restaurant they're getting a significant value out of them when they go to the restaurant. And sometimes the value isn't necessarily from the product itself. Sometimes the value is coming from the experience, but it's very clear that they are looking for that value. With inflation eating away at their uh, consumption power, I think that for a lot of folks, eating out is becoming a treat in some cases. And so because it's becoming a treat, they want to make sure that their money is being well spent. So in some areas, what that's doing is it's pushing a lot of the middle of the road establishments out because consumers are either trading down if they want just a cheap meal or if they want a really good meal, they're going to go to a place a little bit more expensive or that they perceive gives them great value for their experience. And how do you unpack the bundle of factors that might influence a customer's desire to visit a, a specific hospitality space. You've got menus, you've got design, you've got service, price. How does a hospitality operator unpack that value proposition in, in the minds of the customer? What I really recommend is to try and see who your core customer is and what they want. And so For that to happen, you can go around and interview your customers or even people in your neighborhood that you might think could be potential customers for you. And that will give you a good sense of what your customer base is looking for and how you can then tailor your bundle in your restaurant to go after that customer base. Because a lot of folks don't really, I think, have a good sense of what the specific customers want. And they try to be an everything for everybody type of establishment. And I think that in the current market, being an everything for everybody type of establishment is becoming increasingly difficult because people are gravitating towards the establishment that fits their own needs the best and gives them an experience and an atmosphere and a pricing point that's uniquely suited to them. Thinking specifically about experience, What are some of the nuggets of wisdom that come 
from your research in terms of what kinds of experiences are, really are valued by customers? So I'll tell you one thing that's not valued and it's actually very common. So I was recently looking into our smells. And so I was looking at a few restaurants of Cinnabon, I think would be a good mm-hmm. example here, that essentially tries to allure you with smell, with their smell of the cinnamon buns. And it turns out that we have this idea in our minds that if we can get people tempted, we can get them to purchase. And it turns out that's actually not true. So my research actually shows that if you tempt people with a smell like cinnamon buns, all of a sudden, if they are concerned about their weight, or they're on a diet, or they restrict their eating in any way, that actually activates their dieting goals, and they're actually less likely to purchase and less likely to consume. So now we've understood the customer, and we feel that's our target market. How do we go about marketing them, enticing them into our restaurant or hospitality space? What pieces of advice would you give to anyone opening a new space? So the very first piece of advice is, who is your customer? So you really need to understand who is the customer in that area. Because if you don't understand that, then you're going to waste a ton of money creating a new restaurant and it's going to completely fail. However, once you've understood who the customer is, then you need to figure out how do I attract that customer? And so in many cases across the food industry, we tend to use a lot of our marketing spend up front. And so getting people in the door with at least some sort of discount, particularly if you're a mid to low range restaurants, getting people in the door through a discount program or a promotion program that tells people this is what you can expect at our restaurant is really good. Because the key point of marketing is once you've identified who your target customer are, you then have to tell them that you exist and that you serve their needs better than anyone else. Sometimes that is through a monetary promotion, but it doesn't have to always be a monetary promotion. Sometimes it's just getting the word out in some way. And we have a complete array of ways that we could tell customers about us. Any recommendations? You know, how important is social media in getting people to you know, visit a new restaurant, find out about a new restaurant? So I think social media is very helpful because most people are on social media. And the reason why I say most is it depends on the customer. So if you're targeting a clientele that's older, then maybe a lot of your clientele isn't necessarily on social media. On the opposite side, if you're targeting a clientele that's younger, maybe the choice of social media is going to change. So some of our younger generation is no longer viewing Facebook as the area in which they get most of their restaurant information. They no longer even view Yelp. They get a lot of their restaurant information from TikToks. And so social media is super important because that builds word of mouth. But A, it has to be authentic. Uh, It can't be seen as being bought. And the other thing is the social media strategy has to be tailored to the target customer. So depending on the age, depending on their proclivities, they're going to be using different social media and they're going to want different things out of the social media. I even read an article recently that the current generation is actually using TikTok as a substitute for Google. So rather than doing a search on Google as to what is the best restaurant or how do I do X, they will go on TikTok and do that exact search and then consume video content to find out the answer. 
What do you think it is about TikTok that's different from all other social medias at this point in time? I think that TikTok right now represents a way for people to get really quick reactions on a variety of subjects. So the videos are typically short, they're easy to scroll through, and they feel authentic to the younger generation. One of the reasons we're seeing them, at least to some extent, move away from traditional social media is they're viewing it as old school. They're viewing it as part of their parents' generation, for example. And so just as every single generation before them wanted to be hip, cool, and unique, they do too. And so they don't want to be part of a social media platform necessarily that is associated with their parents. Does this potentially lead to a significant demise of Instagram? I don't think that it will lead to a demise of Instagram because there's still plenty of people on Instagram and Instagram is still being used as the resource where people can view photos of food and it's still being shared pretty widely. But what it underscores is that you can't rely on just one platform. You have to have a broader social media strategy that takes into account a variety of platforms because not everyone is going to be on any single platform and not everyone is going to devote the same amount of time to every platform. So my sense is that it's a mistake to say, look, there's a bunch of food pictures on Instagram, so I'm going to concentrate and put a bunch of food pictures on Instagram and that's all I'm going to do. That's a mistake. Mm. You really need to have a broader strategy that takes into account that there's multiple different platforms And these multiple different platforms have multiple different goals. I wonder if you'd share perhaps some of the pitfalls or the things to avoid, perhaps some examples of things that have gone wrong when trying to understand and market to an audience in retail and hospitality. Yeah, so what I've seen a lot is that a lot of restaurant owners, when I talk to them, they tell me, I don't do market research. So I just don't have the money. And so I know I make a really good product. And so I am going to put this product into the market and the product is going to sell itself. And literally that's the number one thing that goes wrong because people just assume that because I like it, everybody else is going to like it. And that's very anecdotal. The biggest pitfall is not doing the research. The biggest pitfall is not listening to your customers not even just walking around your store and seeing what customers are talking about your food in their private conversations. And so doing the research, really understanding uh, your customers is really important. And the other thing to consider is the consumer psychology piece of once the customers are in that restaurant, how to make them feel welcome and also how to structure your menu so that potentially they're not overwhelmed by choice when they're in your restaurant. That's also really key. There's a uh, really, really interesting update that actually McDonald's recently did to their uh, app. So if you go to the McDonald's app, they now don't, the first thing when you see when ordering fries is it doesn't tell you the size of the fries. It just gives you a price. And so what they've essentially in the background done is they've figured out, look, most people get the medium fries. So I'm going to remove some friction from the ordering fries experience 
and just default people and giving them the medium price. And also when you click through to the fries, it defaults to the medium option. Mm -hmm. But if you're not paying attention and you think that the middle is what you want to order, when you actually go to the screen where it has all the sizes, the sizes are actually labeled as small, large, then medium. So if you think that you should be ordering the middle option, you're actually wind up upsizing, mm-hmm. getting a higher amount at a higher price by clicking in the middle and clicking large. One example of just even small things that change your profitability is that consumers really value ease and convenience. So I did this one experiment in a cafe where it turned out that a lot of people were going into the cafe to get coffee. And in one scenario, the snacks were further away from the coffee than another scenario. And it turns out that making the snacks closer to the coffee got them to get more snacks. And so that's just an example of looking at the customer and making the choices that you want the customer to make really simple and essentially frictionless. So a lot of I think restaurateurs don't really think of a lot of these small tricks that could really have a huge impact on the bottom line when combined. Another thing that I see restaurants doing all the time is when they have a little bit of a larger menu, they can try to focus in on certain items. And so if you're not giving consumers a reason to purchase a certain item, you're missing out because consumers like it when the restaurant highlights a certain item, when the restaurant makes a recommendation, they like that and gets them to purchase it more. And so one of the things that you should do is when you're highlighting, think about your own bottom line. Is this a higher profit margin item or is this a lower profit margin item? Similarly, I've seen restaurateurs make mistakes when they name their products on their menus as well. This is coming out of my own research, actually, where I looked at adjectives that are used to describe items on menus. And so what I found is that when restaurateurs are using names, a lot of these names are very common and hip and cool. People don't really know what they mean necessarily. Even words like braised, not everyone knows what they mean. And the problem that occurs when you use words that people don't know what they mean is they automatically assume that product is going to be way more expensive and it's a product that's not ideal for them. It's not a match for them and they're less likely to order it. And if they see the menu before going into the restaurant and they see a menu full of items that they don't understand, they're actually less likely to even go to the restaurant to begin with. Even though if they had bought the dish, it would have been great. They would have loved it. The fact that the restaurateur is using an adjective that they don't understand means that they're less likely to go in. That is absolutely fantastic. Thanks for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Ernest delivered a wealth of insights here. But for me... The key finding is that every hospitality business should invest the time to truly understand its customers. Why are they stepping through the door? What is the value being delivered? And how can a business authentically communicate this in their marketing? Next up, we speak with Blonnie Whist, Insight Director at Lumina Intelligence, a UK food and beverage research firm, part of the William Reed Group. 
Blonnie and her team are experts in delivering powerful customer insights to a wide range of clients across the UK food and beverage sector. Welcome, Blonnie. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Could you give us some background on Luminate Intelligence and your role in the business? Absolutely. So we're a data and insight company really focused on food and drink. And and in particular, we focus on food service and convenience stores. Uh, So we generate most of our insight through consumer research and we generate huge amount of data. So on the food service side, we speak to 72,000 UK residents each year and we ask them almost a painful amount of details about everything they've eaten and drunk in the last week. Where did they get it from? What brand? What channel? How did they buy it? What did they eat? Why they ate that? And I guess how they feel about the whole experience. Wow. So... My role in Lumina is as Insight Director. Uh, So my teams are responsible for the research side, and that means really designing the methodology, writing the surveys, and trying to innovate on how we collect the data. And then I'm also responsible for the Insight team. So they're the ones who take all this data, but then turn it into a story. Now, one mechanism for understanding customers is consumer surveys, and presumably Your teams do quite a lot of surveys. Yeah, tons. And uh, I guess our core products are also tracking surveys. So they're ones which are kept consistent. That's how we just sort of generally get a read of the market. Okay, so there's the tracking surveys, which are completely consistent ongoing surveys. And then you've got your kind of bespoke surveys. Absolutely. What are the keys to designing an incredible, very effective bespoke survey? Yeah, I'd say that probably length is one of the most important things and often overlooked. So you need to ask enough questions to answer all of the key objectives, but you can't have it be too long. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be really balanced. And I think that often people maybe fall into this trap. You have so many objectives. Every area of the business needs to know a different thing. And you've got a respondent on the phone or online for 45 minutes plus, and they get so fatigued that actually they stop giving you real answers. Mm. So I think having that balance is so critical. Having a real clarity of what you want to ask is also really, really important. And then, of course, there's just health checks. So questions can't be biased. They can't be leading. And you can't have any language that's very subjective or unclear. And testing it is so important. And we do lots of rounds of internal testing. Just having people go through and answer the questions as if they were really taking the survey. Okay, so you've collected great data, you've analysed it. What happens then? I guess that's the fun part, really, isn't it? Mm. You get to be creative with it. And I think that's why so many of our insight managers love this role, because it's about thinking of creative paths of analysis to go down, different ways to visualise the data. And actually, we're really, really proud of our dashboards and our data analysis tools, So we have a portal full of dashboards. They're very slick. You can drag and drop. And we always talk about how we're pitching this at two different levels. So you've got some people who want to do really high-level data analysis, but some of our clients are maybe less data literate. They just want to be able to see numbers, charts, a bit of color coding, something really, really simple. And so ultimately, though, you're working with clients. What would you advise clients to be aware of or what are the challenges that you face in providing the best value to clients? I'd say the main challenge is probably really understanding what the goal of the research is, especially when there are so many stakeholders. 
There are different departments who all have different needs. And often I think insight teams have to take all of those needs and put them together into a big list of objectives and then give it to an agency. And I think the best projects are always the ones where we can work as consultants as well. So we can say, have you thought about structuring it like this? Or, you know, this is a really strong theme. It gives real clarity to the questionnaire. So I think when we can push back and vice versa, they're always the best projects to work on. And they're the ones that clients would agree we get the best feedback on as well when we can be consultants. Mm. And I think probably the other thing is when a business has a really clear idea of what they already want to see. If someone isn't willing to listen to what the data is saying, isn't willing to have their own assumptions challenged, then they're probably trying to lead the insight rather than the other way around, if that makes sense. I mean, ultimately, yeah, sometimes there's an agenda that somebody wants to push through. That's so true. I'd say the worst kinds of projects that we work on are the ones that are being used as just marketing tools or, or sales decks. Mm-hmm. So you really want to know what the data is going to show and they're using it to prove a point rather than to understand or to challenge what maybe they don't know. And mm. they, you know, sometimes you get the number, which is great, but not as fulfilling. I wonder if you could give us kind of a high level example of where great research has been able to deliver incredible value to a business. This is a wholesale example where we were talking to a snack supplier and they really wanted to understand how their products were getting to consumers in the first place. So how they could get into more shops nearby where these consumers were, um, how they could get their snacks into these consumers' hands really I guess it's about disrupting that retailer journey when they were buying products to stock their shop with. They wanted to know how they could beat out maybe bigger brands. So we carried out some quantitative research, some qualitative research, just a really nice mixed methodology just to get a full understanding of what was going on. And actually they found that they had really underestimated how planned these retailers were when they were shopping. So actually when they were putting snacks in their store, it was actually a bit more in the moment decisions. They didn't really use lists. Actually, what they found was that it was much more important to focus on targeting and communicating before they got to actually be in depot. So what this snack supplier did was totally redirect where their budgets went. They invested a lot more in pre-store marketing and in sales teams. And the results are incredible. So just having that clarity of where you want your budget to go is going to save money overall. And actually, you have retailers who are a lot more engaged in your products. Blonnie, thanks so much for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Pleasure. Based on the conversation with Blonnie, the key to delivering maximum insight is to be clear about what the research is aiming to achieve. Who is the research sample and who will it be read by? Also, seek to avoid bias at all costs. Now let's finish by speaking with an operator and data provider, JP Then, co-founder of Crosstown Donuts, and more recently the founder of Slurp, an online food ordering system for hospitality businesses. JP moved to London from Australia and created Crosstown in 2013, a specialty coffee and artisan bakery pioneering sourdough donuts. The brand has since grown to over 20 sites and are now expanding throughout the UK. And if that wasn't enough, in 2016, JP founded Slurp, a suite of applications that help hospitality businesses connect with their customers digitally 
through loyalty schemes, click and collect, table ordering, and much more. Let's hear from JP on how he went about understanding his own customers while building Crosstown. And what are the big opportunities with digital data? Welcome, JP. Hi there. Really happy to be talking to you all. I wonder if you could tell me where you think the hospitality industry is right now when it comes to using digital data to understand customers. We're in the business of hospitality, right? Which means that we're in the business of people. And without our customers, you know, what are we? So I feel like this sector is in this transitional phase when it comes to understanding who are our customers. And it really is this movement from what I would call the analog to digital. And we all have to wake up to it happening. And the more that digital ordering becomes a part of our lives, ultimately, the more rich in data that we get as operators, and therefore the better experiences we should be able to provide. So we are able to know more about our customers than ever before. And it will become really fundamental in terms of how we think about doing business in the future. I think it's in a a transitional phase where there's definitely resistance to wanting to use digital data, so to speak. I think it's also driven from a fear of knowing how to use it and what to do with it. So I think there's a learning curve that the sector will go through, but it's pretty exciting. And from my view anyway, as as an operator with a scaling SME business and a technology business that enables digital ordering, it opens you up to some really interesting opportunities and how you think about where you go, what your business model is, what is omni-channel, how do you sell, how do you grow your business? Obviously, I'm super excited about what it can do for the sector, but we're at early stages and hospitality as a sector has never been one to be super innovative and embracing tech. It will take time. I think it will take time for us to get ahead around, but I think the the amount of technology that's out there to help understand your customer is growing. And a lot of it's very interesting. And back to those early days at Crosstown, what was your approach to just understanding what the customer wanted? I mean, it started with a product, of course, is that without having a brilliant product, it doesn't matter what you do. You've got to make sure that eating experience was brilliant. And what we learned quite early on was obviously, depending on where you are, you attract different demographics. In terms of what we did, we were a sweet treat, right? So our ethos was like, how do we provide someone with that moment away that might be a few minutes to escape the chaos of London? We've just got to provide that little glimpse of like, ah, this was delicious. I really enjoyed that. But naturally, what we started to do is capture different types of audiences depending where we were. So Leather Lane, our very first site was very much a lunchtime crowd. And we knew that people would buy a donut with their lunch or straight after lunch. We also learned that people would come very early in the morning and buy a box for, let's say, maybe it was someone's birthday or someone's leaving due. So we learned quite quickly that there would be a catering angle with what we did. And then we did the first pop-up with Piccadilly and we paired it with coffee. It's like, can we stop traffic literally in one of the busiest stations in London to pair donuts with coffee? We realized we could. So I think it really enabled us to think, what are the different moments that we can provide customers? It's an early morning thing. It's a lunchtime thing. It's an afternoon treat. It can be a dessert. It can be an evening thing. So some of our sites, they're open very late because 
people who don't drink, for example, they want to go out and enjoy themselves, come get a Crosstown Donut. So rather than really be about who they are, it's like, where are the moments that we can say Crosstown exists? And was there any sort of formal plan to gather feedback from customers? In the early days, a lot of it was taste testing. It was about, you know, give us feedback about what you think about the product. We were very conscious that we were breaking new ground with what we were doing. It's a scratch bakery creating a sourdough donut with very high quality ingredients, a very different price point compared to what was out there, much more premium, much more expensive. And so we were super conscious that this is going to cost us a lot more to produce, therefore it's going to cost a lot more to sell, but is there a market for that? So for us, it was really testing, is there good feedback on the product? And then also testing that the price sensitivity is to, you know, will someone pay 30 plus pounds for a box of donuts? And we realized there was a market for it, which was what we'd hoped. So yeah, I I think gathering feedback at the start was really about, are people happy with the product and do they think it's worth what what they can pay for it? As sort of Slurp became part of your mini empire, how did that give you more data on what your customers were doing or wanting? So our starting point as a sector is, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, Just Eat, you know, those guys and enabling us as brands to be on those platforms and sell to customers. The challenge is that we obviously don't get the customer data. We don't know who is purchasing, where they are, etc. So a big blocker is that yes, it generates revenue if you're on the platforms but it comes at a cost of not knowing who they are and the commissions that they take. So Slurp was about creating a platform that, well, this is about Crosstown or any other brand that uses us. How do we give them a front end that customers can use? It's very much their brand and they engage and they interact with the customer and they know who they are. So all of a sudden with Slurp, you're starting to gather customer information. And because it's all digital ordering, it can be extremely rich in terms of what they're purchasing, when, how, is it a delivery, is it click and collect, is it a same day order, is it a pre-order? There's a lot of information that you can extract from, you know, as you build up more and more orders, there's lots of data to flow through. So in a basic sense, even just segmentation, and what I mean by that is, okay, we've opened a shop in Brighton recently. Who has placed an online order around the Brighton area in the last two years? Can we send them an email and say, hey, we've opened a shop in Brighton? That's what we did. So just simple things like that. Just awareness raising, hey, look, you've ordered before. We're now here. Come say hi. And maybe you attach an offer to it. So that's at its basic level. As this sector evolves, as the technology improves and evolves, it will get more sophisticated, more tailored. And, you know, you'll start to look at habits. I, you know, I buy a three-shot flat white every morning. If it knows I'm doing that, why doesn't it tell me about a new bean that's coming in soon? Because I'm a coffee buyer, right? So I think as a starting point, as a sector, we just have to embrace gathering the data. <laughs> that's the first step is like, let's focus on accepting that we should be trying to get this information so that we can start to 
think about how we can give that customer a better experience. And the way I always think about it as well is if you go to your favorite restaurant or you check into a hotel and they remember that little thing. So for me, it's always like, oh, I'm allergic to crustaceans. So if they're like, oh yeah, don't worry, JP, you can't have that dish because it's got this in it. I remember. You're like, oh, I'm so impressed by that. The person remembered. It's the same thing. We're just using the data. So now it's like, if we can have all that at our fingertips, isn't that a good experience? So that that's the way that I, th- I think about it is like, how do we enable operators to have more information about their customer, not so they can abuse it, but so they can just provide that better experience. Mm. And what about loyalty schemes? We did some research at Slurp and you know, 93% said that the availability of rewards or points would influence where they would order from, which is massive. You know, it's pretty much everyone. I think it was four out of five people said that rewards would make them spend more. And I think it was around 85% said that they were more likely to spend directly online if rewards were available. So customers are telling us they want this. <laughs> it's really us as a sector that has to say, let's start to offer it. So incentives are not new, right? They've been around for a long time, but they're relatively unsophisticated when it comes to food and beverage. And we all know the traditional coffee stamp card and really rarely evolved, but now there are technologies like Slurp that that can take it to the next level for customers to, to capture you know, more information and more engagement. So when you combine a loyalty program or a reward program with your own digital ordering platform, it's like combining your POS system with the coffee stamp card and combining that with customer data. If we think about that and go, this is really interesting. We can provide that richer customer experience. And yes, okay, let's digitalize that coffee stamp card, buy nine coffees, get the 10th free. But let's also throw in, hey, you've got bakery products. Why don't we give you points for that? When you get to 25 points, you're going to get five pounds off your next order. It's going to happen automatically when you check out. And it only takes 10 seconds to check out because there's Apple Pay, Google Pay, et cetera. So I think... It's a no-brainer that it's going to go this way. It's just about us embracing it as a sector. Amazing. Thanks for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Thanks a lot. I agree with JP. The hospitality industry has been slow to leverage digital data relative to other industries. However, for the operators who are prepared to embrace the digital challenge, the business benefits are powerful. I see many opportunities for businesses of every size to engage in more market research. Operators today have a mountain of data available at their fingertips, and buried deep into this data are the secrets to who their customers are and what they really want. Operators who invest the time to collect this data to understand the insights and modify their businesses accordingly are more likely to be those who achieve greater commercial success. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to The Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. If you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Link in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, James Harper of Filter Productions and Sound Engineering by Chris Bristow. 
And this week's song in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project is Do You Know by Steve Ray Ladson. And until next time, stay safe, stay informed, and stay caffeinated. Yeah.